0: Hello there, this is Pastor Spencer uh, here. We are doing our second question, the second episode of the Baptist Catechism, question two, um, using this as a, as a teaching tool, hopefully, to help us to think about our Baptist faith, what we believe, and, uh, and just kind of walk through it um, in this way, hopefully somewhat devotional as well, um, so encouraging to your faith and uh, to your life. So, yeah, I'm glad you're with us. Hopefully this is, uh, just gives you a little something extra um, just to think about. And, um, yeah, I think it's, it's going to be a lot of fun um, as we go through this. So this is the Baptist Catechism, and now we're on question two. Last week, remember, we talked about who is the first and chiefest being. God is the first and chiefest being. Question two, ought everyone to believe that there is a God Answer, everyone ought to believe that there is a God, and it is their great sin and folly who do not. So, let's repeat that one more time. Question To ought everyone to believe that there is a God? Answer, everyone ought to believe that there is a God, and it is their great sin and folly who do not. So, Obviously, we have in the scriptures, the Psalm 14, verse 1, where it says, The fool and says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Psalm 14, verse 1. There is great foolishness, isn't there, for those who disbelieve God or disbelieve in, in God's existence. The Bible calls them fools. And being foolish isn't simply being silly. It's actually being someone who is dangerous someone who is uh, untrustworthy, someone who is, brings chaos and confusion into their own lives and into the lives of others. We know that foolishness is involved in disbelieving God, but also <clears throat> without uh, knowing about God and knowing Him and believing in Him, it is impossible to please God, isn't it? Hebrews 11.6, and without faith, it is impossible to please Him, referring to God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Everyone, as the catechism teaches us, ought to believe there is a God. And this God, he exists, he exists in himself and by himself and uh, by his own power. uh, And his existence is both the comfort for believers and it's the terror for the wicked. Right? So, how often, right, how have we as believers been comforted by the fact that, yes, there is a God and he is good because we know him? But for those who are sinners, for the wicked, and until we come to know God in Christ, God is terrifying to us. And we might even wish that he didn't exist, but he does. Everyone ought to believe that there is a God, and it is their great sin and folly who do not. The reality is, is that human uh, experience teaches us that mankind realizes that there's a higher power. There is a God, or sometimes in in pagan or in, and uh, sinful cultures, it's understood to be gods, or people will create false gods uh, for themselves. But they still believe there is something or someone out there. The first man believed that there was God. Adam uh, says. Uh, in Genesis 3.10, he says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Other men, later on after Adam, uh, believed in God, and they called upon his name. Genesis 4.26, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. All nations, even, after this, believe in God, even if they do not glorify him as God. Romans 1.21 says this, for although they, speaking about all mankind, they know God. They knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Not only men and all nations, even if they don't glorify him as God, know that there is a God that exists, but even other creatures believe in God. For instance, we read in Revelation chapter 4 verse 8, and the four living creatures each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within and day and night. They never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Revelation 4, 8, the creatures surrounding the throne, they know, they believe that there is a God. But not only they, but the demons believe there is a God. James 2:19. you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Everyone ought to believe there is a God. Even the demons in hell and the demons uh, that, are, that are in darkness and uh, will be punished by God, they believe and know that there is a God. And therefore, it is our great sin and folly if we don't believe in God. We must repent of the sin of disbelief and learn to know the Lord. Ignorance of God is not simply... Uh, an ignorance, innocent ignorance, it's a folly, it's a shame, and it's a sin. Jeremiah 3.21, a voice on the bare heights is heard and weeping, the weeping and pleading of Israel's sons because they have perverted their way. They have forgotten the Lord their God. They forgot the Lord. Man's great sin is forgetting and disbelieving in God. Ignorance of God is a sin, a shame, and a folly, but it's also without excuse. Romans 1:20. for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. We have no excuses, no way that we can say or justify or uh, give a good reason for why we don't know God. Paul says we are without excuse. We are guilty. And ignorance of God is a destructive sin. It's folly. It's shameful. It's foolishness. It's without excuse. And it is a destructive sin that leads to eternal destruction. Job 18, 14 through 21 speaks and says this. He is torn from the tent in which he trusted and is brought to the king of terrors. In his tent dwells that which is none of his sulfur is scattered over his habitation. His roots dry up beneath and his branches wither above his memory perishes from the earth and he has no name in the street. He is thrust from light into darkness and driven out of the world. He has no posterity or progeny among his people and no survivor where he used to live. They of the West are appalled at his day and horror seizes them of the East. Now listen to this last verse. Surely, such are the dwellings of the unrighteous. Such is the place of him who knows not God. To not know God is to be unrighteous and to be cast into destruction forever. Therefore, everyone ought to believe that there is a God and it is there, it is our great sin and folly who do not. That's the truth, and that's why we want to take the gospel to the unbelieving world. It is their great folly and sin who do not know God, and we want them to know God. But also, you and I must press on to know the Lord, to know him, to trust in him, because it is a great sin to willingly remain in our ignorance, especially we who have the word of God and know him, to we should press on to know him and to trust in him. So, ought everyone to believe that there is a God? Yes, as the answer is everyone ought to believe that there is a God, and it is their great sin and folly who do not. As we think about this, I want to read a short uh, article here from Donovan Riley. It's called When a Christian is Pushed into Atheism. Who will bring a Christian back to church when they are pushed into atheism? How do we respond when a Christian acknowledges that they have fallen into doubt about the existence of God and their purpose as a Christian? What about a pastor who struggles to keep up the mask of faithfulness but isn't convinced there is a God anymore? We all want to believe there's more to life than be born, suffer, die, but whether it's Christians or our conscience or both, sometimes all we see and hear and experience are variations on a theme you're an embarrassment to god and the church for the christian who struggles with disbelief the message that they must offer sacrifice and behave themselves if they want god to reward and not punish them sounds like one of many similar religious variations what do we say when a christian admits the church has driven them to atheism and they don't mean that ideologically either the church has convinced them there is no god and no and one religion is about as good as the next they have noted that in conversation with people of different beliefs, everybody's looking for, for a greater meaning. They plug into whatever religion offers them meaning, into whatever offers them a place and purpose. This is the root of many Christians' negativity and animosity towards their church. Their time sitting in a pew, listening, observing, and interacting with other Christians has convinced them Christianity is just another religious movement. They believe if you scratch another Christian hard enough, and just beneath their skin is a pagan. They know the rituals, rules, and rhetoric that make a Christian Christian, but take away the Christianese, and many Christians could just as well worship Thor on Sunday morning. Then there are all the people who didn't grow up in a church, people who walk into a church looking for a way out from the start. They are fighting against their belief that there's a God who orders all things, tests all things, and judges all things. They're troubled, and they've come to find answers. What do we say to people who join our church because they're alone and don't know where to go with their questions, turbulent feelings, and so on? How do we respond when another Christian finally admits, today he is as close to being an atheist as ever? First, we remind him that it's a good thing our hope isn't in the church, especially not the church this side of the resurrection. Next, we recognize, as C.S. Lewis writes, that is why we can be saved only by falling back continually from the web of our own arguments, as from our intellectual counters into the reality, from Christian apologetics into Christ himself. That is why faith is such a necessary virtue. Unless you teach your moods where they get off, you can never be either a sound Christian or even a sound atheist. When we can't trust our faith, and we're forced to admit that belief in our ability to believe doesn't save us from unbelief, then we are turned back to trusting God's Word and what it says about Jesus' faithfulness to us. We can assure new and old Christians, don't be worried when you are afflicted by doubt. As Martin Luther writes, such a trial is the very best sign of God's grace and love for man. Who will bring a Christian back to church when they have, putish, when they have when they pushed into atheism? Only God can bring them back from unbelief to trust in the faithfulness of Jesus, his Savior. Point a Christian who doubts to God's word and to Christ and his gifts. Pray for him. Surround him with the love of the saints so that, as Luther writes, hands may be joined together and one may help another. So as we encourage each other to know God, to believe that there is a God and to know, we know it's a great sin and folly to not believe in God. We want to do this together as a church and together to, to keep pointing each other to that first and chiefest being who is God, to believe that he is there, that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. And next week, we're going to learn and ask the question, question three, which deals with now, how do we know there is a God? How do we learn about him? How do we know who he is? We will answer that question next as we dive in further into this catechism. Well, thank you for listening again to this. I, I hope it's encouraging to you and uh, prompts you to think. And, and I would encourage you to reflect on these questions, maybe even try to memorize them if you can, or think about these things. Um, Ought everyone to believe that there is a God. Everyone ought to believe that there is a God. And it is their great sin and folly who do not. Join us next week. Take care. God bless.